Clem, sorry I missed out on our uh, scheduled recording last night. I was looking forward to having a conversation about this episode called Requiem for Gleets. But I was wondering if mm. you'd be willing to have the same conversation this morning with me right now. Well, bang the drums and ring the pipes and I'll rend our fucking garments, my friend. <laughs> I think I always misunderstand what rend garments means. That I always... It, mean, it, yeah, means, I, it, it means to tear them, right? Right. That's what I thought, yeah. Okay. Maybe I'm not... I, 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 maybe Just I was, freaking out, tearing your clothes off. Yeah. Like the, the like some X-rated Pied Piper or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I'm not misunderstanding, but it... I guess because it rhymes with mend. Maybe that's why I'm confusing myself. And to oh, render... Sure. Is, it, to, is to render to destroy something? Is that the same uh, meaning? It can be, yeah. Because, I mean, you think of like a meat rendering plant... Right. It's like stripping stripping down animals and stuff. <laughs> the most the most brutal of uh, it's not a it's not a don't be alarmed children, it's not actually a floor. Um <laughs> <laughs> It's more it's more of a grating where it allows the internal organs of blood to flow through. Yes. <laughs> so RIP Phil Hartman. Yep. It's an anniversary, I think uh, a couple days ago. Yeah. Uh, of uh, the anniversary of his death. Mm-hmm. Okay, because he must have he must have only been in a few seasons of The Simpsons too at that point. Probably less than uh, I would guess, right? Let's see. This is tw- I mean, if I'm assuming it's thirty thirtieth anniversary, so ninety three. So he would have been in four seasons. Wow, yeah. that's it. Yeah, four wow. seasons. Yeah. I guess Lionel Lionel Hutz was in a lot of episodes of The Simpsons or something like that. Well, he he did so many different. He did a, a bunch of. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. He died. He died later 90, than that. He died in '98. Okay, so it must be the 25th anniversary. That's okay. <laughs> Makes more sense. So yeah, he, did, he was, did, did news radio too, which would have taken right. up that middle period. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear? Uh, <laughs> I like how we we started this talking about Deadwood, but then quickly turned it into The Simpsons and Phil Hartman. But I had heard <clears throat> just recently. That apparently Andy Dick was the person responsible for getting Phil Hartman's wife hooked on drugs. Yeah, that's the story. Again, I guess. Yeah. Oh, again, and or then, like the yeah, like she, obviously she leading had, up to her problem. Or her, yeah, like, she had yeah. she had been had a drug problem. Then when uh, I guess when he was on news radio, she crossed paths with Andy Dick, who uh, has his own demons. Yeah, and uh, sent her back down a dark path. And uh, Phil Hartman, not Phil Hartman, uh, John Lovitz confronted him about it at some point afterwards after phil hartman had died and he said something like watch out you'll be next and phil hartman i mean uh, john lovitz punched him in the face <laughs> that's the story anyway yeah andy dick's a weird character like what, yeah. a, what a strange periphery of a, a hollywood character to have just hanging around and stuff like that like he's been in stuff you would notice but i wouldn't say he's a name actor or anything like that so he's he, yeah. he occupies a weird space in the actor uh, hierarchy i think yeah, I feel like he uh, every every single person on news radio who wasn't Phil Hartman, I feel like fell into that category mm-hmm. at least until one of them got a successful controversial podcast and the other one became one of the most beloved character actors of all time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but that was the episode that was the show where it's like I thought the redhead on the show was Kathy Griffin, but it wasn't. It was some other redhead yeah. approximation of that <laughs> character. Andy Dick was kind of similar to one or two other characters or actors who were on TV at the time. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a lot of like, I don't want to say 
I, th- I feel like the top rung is already B level. So let's say like at the time, like C level personalities or like newer yeah. Yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, and obviously Phil Hartman and Steven Root. Yes. Yep. Yep. Andy Dick was on uh, the Stiller show, that sketch comedy show that happened for a little oh, bit. Oh, that's right. That yeah. led into that. Anyway, this is a Deadwood podcast. We will talk about Deadwood. We're up to Requiem for a Gleet. So we are going to take a break. We'll play the music. We'll come back and we'll break it down. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. Requiem for Gleet is the fourth episode of the second season of Deadwood, directed by Alan Taylor. He's a famous HBO name at this point, written by Ted Mann. In this episode, Carrie arrives in town, arriving on the same stage as Hugo Jari, the Lawrence County Commissioner, who immediately seeks outside Tolliver at the Bella Union. Carrie arrives at the Chez Ami. Doc Cochran attends to the ever more desperate Swearingen and suggests surgery to cut into his bladder and remove his kidney stones. Jerry tells Tolliver and Walcott of new rules that will apply to gold claims in the territory. Starr tells Bullock that he has news from Denver about their proposal to start a bank. A distraught Miss Isernhausen calls on Adams and convinces him that the widow Garrett is going to kill her. Walcott tells Tolliver that a new Chinaman in town, Mr. Lee, will now provide opium to Tolliver to sell in the camp. Walcott also visits- known as also known as the tall cocksucker from San Francisco. Yeah, the San Francisco cocksucker, a.k.a. San Francisco cocksucker, which <laughs> is very close to the San Francisco treach, which is rice aroni, but we won't confuse the two in this podcast. <laughs> Did you, my favorite, um, this is just, this is like borderline, connect, it's borderline connected just from San Francisco cocksucker. You know how in um, poker, all the hands have a name on them? Like there's the dead man's hand and oh, stuff sure, like that. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Do you know what? <laughs> My favorite is um, yeah, mildly offensive, but um, it's the San Francisco busboy. Okay. It's a queen with a tray. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> San Francisco cocksucker. It works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Walcott visits the Chez Ami and has a brief... Did I read this? Yes. Walcott visits the Chez Ami and has a brief sexual encounter with Carrie. You might try sometime with your prick outside your pants, she tells him. We've all heard that before, but Walcott just brings it to life on the screen. So this is it, Requiem for Gleet, uh, which I don't know if it's... When did Requiem for a Dream come out? Is this is this sort of a parody title of that movie? It probably came out before this, I think, right? Requiem for a Dream. Uh, 99? Was that Requiem when that came out? Requiem for a Dream was 2000. Yeah, okay. So it could be a reference to that. Um, yeah, so this is Requiem for a Gleet. Swearingen's kidney stones are... Uh, Bladder stones, I guess. I was reading up on them. I guess they can be confused, although bladder stones are much more serious than kidney stones, I guess. So I think he has mm. bladder stones. But anyway, it's regardless. He's got uh, his whatever Dan Doherty says, his piss plumbing's all plugged up or something like that. <laughs> and he's got piss in his lungs, and Adams can't believe it. Uh, Tolliver and all that is working together to buy the gold can- claims from the miners. Walcott is sort of dancing around the campsite and visiting uh, the mining operations and everything like that. So what did you think about Requiem for a Gleet, Clay? It was good. Um, I do find I'm finding it harder to track the dialogue in the show. And I don't know if it's because they are leaning into their thing more, 
but there were a few scenes that I had to watch twice in order to figure out what the hell they were talking about because it was so <clears throat> densely scripted as far as the way that they were uh, kind of talking around stuff or, or the style and, and of the of the dial the dialect that they were choosing to use. Um, are, are the scenes? <clears throat> I guess the question for me would be: Are the scenes related to what? Walcott and Tolliver and Hurst and all them are doing? Or are they other scenes outside of that? Because yeah, I, it's, it's mostly those ones. Because I, I sort of wonder about that, which is that the the plot that they're involved in is sort of like abstract and off screen, really. Like it's right, a, yeah. They're, they're sort of, they're operate they're doing what they're planning to do, but the idea of what they're doing is not really physically visible in it. It's just a bunch of conversation between those characters about yeah. what's going on. Yeah, like the one that I definitely had to to rewatch, which I'm glad I I am actually glad I did. Um was the Ellsworth <clears throat> Ellsworth and um Alma fuck, what's or her name? Walcott. Alma. Uh, Ellsworth and Alma. Yeah. Where he's telling her basically everybody thinks that the the dams are going to break and so they're trying to sell everything but he thinks that it's going to yeah, like I I really like that scene. Yeah. Because it um this episode was a great Ellsworth episode because it's really uh, they they're really taking a character who seemed like sort of a um, throwaway gold mining character and, and and giving him some stuff to do and giving him a history with Hearst is really interesting and uh, just making him seem like a more um, important character who actually has has some uh, agency and 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 some interesting stuff to to say and do. Yeah, has like um, a backstory and a, his own point yeah. of view about things too with this. This is probably yeah. his most impressive episode so far just in he he only really has those two scenes but it does flesh out his uh background as someone who previously worked on at least the Comstock mines which are a famous Hearst gold mine in Nevada, I think, and apparently things didn't go where uh, well there. That's what he knows Walcott yeah. from. The Walcotts, the conversation with him and Walcott was one where I was like, okay, I get what's going on here, but I don't exactly know what they're talking about because they keep saying Comstock. I'm like, is that a thing? Is that like a? Is that like a? I, I, I'm assuming that's a mine. Yeah, it's a, it's a location. I think it's a place. Yeah, and I and I understood that like they were they were did something incorrectly and the mine collapsed and a bunch of people died or whatever. But um, that they they were kind of talking around it a little bit where, and I'm and I'm not wishing that they did give you a bunch of exposition because you know who gives a shit. But yeah, um, again, the show just takes a little bit more uh, attention to really parse things out. Like the but I'm you know I hate to say this. But I feel like they're they're pushing it a bit too far with EB because I like I liked his sort of soliloquy sort of stuff that he was doing, but this one and I feel like the last one, it it feels like they're they're making his verbiage like way too complicated. Yep, it, it seems like they're just they're doing it just to see how. It, how complicated they can possibly make his dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, are you talking about his scene with Richardson or are you talking about something yes, else? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's like, I, I, I don't know. It, it felt, this was the first time where I felt like, all right, I feel like they're pushing this a bit too far with him. Hello? What's your business? Francis Wolcott. My name's Ellsworth, Mr. Francis Wolcott. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. How do you do? I'm well. Glad you make me out. 
because them as poke around Miss Garrett's workings without a buy your leave ain't welcome, Mr. Wolcott, and you ought not to repeat your fucking mistake. Well, that's an uncivil response to an innocent error. Did you work in the Comstock when you was beardless? I did. Well, Mr. George Hurst has a keen eye for the color. As a geologist for Mr. Hurst. You have the advantage of me, Mr. Ellsworth. That ain't a possibility, Wolcott. No more than an error of yours would be innocent. I do dimly recall an Ellsworth. Superintended the Consolidated Virginia operation. I don't give a fuck what you recall. A hero. Dug a week without respite to save three poor souls from the cave-in. And 46 corpses in a fucking hole that ought never have been dug. Always a choice. Count the saved or lost. Get off this property. Just as a man opposed to inevitable change needn't invariably be called a Luddite, another choice might be simply to describe him as slow in his process. You tell that cocksucker you work for, the next surrogate he sends oughtn't to be bloody from the Comstock. As I mentioned before in the previous episodes, I always thought that the first half of season two was like the weakest stretch of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Watching it this time, I actually think differently about it. I don't think it's necessarily weaker, but I think that it is um it's possibly what you're describing. It's a little bit more like oblique about what's going on. Yeah. And it's it's not yeah. nearly as obvious and there's not a kind of like you know, Swearingen has been taken off the board. There's not a sort of like physical fisticuffs that's going on. There's no there's not a lot of scenes of characters confronting each other and talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And like and arguing in the way that Seth and Swearingen did in the first season and things like that. It's mostly Walcott walking around in the background causing problems for things. People either recognizing him or not recognizing him and deciding how to react to him in that in that way. So you have like Ellsworth on one hand and you have Tolliver on the other one in terms of mm-hmm. how they people deal with Walcott. And you know, a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the plotting that's going on is it's it's the same thing what happened the first it's not especially especially complicated, but they talk about it in a way that makes it sound complicated than yeah. more complicated than what it is. Yeah. So so nothing much has really changed in terms of like Hearst is trying to get the miners to sell their claims for pennies on the dollar so that he can buy them all up and then kick everybody out and have everything. He's doing that by spreading rumors through Tolliver and uh, less effectively through EB to sort of like <laughs> cause problems and to have people sell. He's also basically bought out the government in the form of Hugo Jari, who's this new commissioner that's been sent in. So Ned, he, Needlenose Ned, Ned the Head, Ned Ryerson. You know him. Yeah. It, it, what, what, uh, what, and what's the, the reference from, um, I know the, uh, I was going to say the famous version I know is the, uh, the character from Memento. Um. Oh yes, the, shit. The guy who actually had the problem, or, or maybe right. didn't have the problem. Yeah, right. Yeah, I can't remember what his name is. Um. So he he's got Jari in his pocket, and they are coming together to sort of legitimize how they're going to take all the claims from people and then split them up. In the the conversation they have is funny because it sounds like they're legitimately considering having like a um a fair like lottery system that's going to determine who gets mm-hmm. the claims. But obviously mm-hmm. it's all tongue in cheek and they're sort of making fun and being sarcastic about what they're doing. But I, I think that's the problem that I see with the like cons- 
conceptualizing what's going on in the second season is that it's a little bit more vague about where the threats are coming from. The the thing that I like about it that I never really noticed before or never really internalized by watching it this way is that um, the the it's doing or it does this it's what it's done so far early on is it's doing this really effective job of building the darkness that's coming basically like there's a mm. um they're really getting into this idea that like a bad thing is coming a lot of the characters in this episode talk about like an impending problem or like burning things down there's a fire that keeps getting referenced um right. they're going to burn things down they can't get to that point um Walcott tells Ellsworth that fate is dark or fate is fate is painful or something like that uh, at the when he's talking to him at the the mining shaft mm-hmm. um and I think that they are they know that the the Maddie and uh Joni talk about the girl that has to be sort of sacrificed on the altar as Walcott doesn't even know what's going on but he's talking about the same thing um so they're hinting at there's a lot of foreshadowing about the badness that's coming and it's it's how everyone is sort of setting up to deal with Walcott. And it, it all ties into what we talked about before, which is that Swearingen has been effectively removed from the situation. So you're seeing how everyone else is going to interact with him and, and deal with that stuff. Yeah. But I find it, um, in a way that I might have found it slow or something early on, I'm, I'm intrigued by it this time around. And I think that it's pretty, it's low key, but it's really effective in where where they're bringing things to. And it's kind of a slow build, but I'm finding it enjoyable this time in a way that I previously hadn't. Yeah. I, um, I, I am also enjoying it um, because I do think it's, I think it does take a, a a bit to kind of see uh, where they're pulling the net from and how the pieces are going to kind of pull together. But uh, yeah, I, I, I like the, I like the Walcott character and I like what he is, uh, what he represents. And I like that they're not playing their hand too heavily. Like, you know, we, we made the, um, the silver surfer comparison the last episode. Yeah. And I, I think, I think they're playing it well where he's this weird malevolent force, but all he really needs to do is just be there for people to start freaking out and like getting antsy. Yeah. He doesn't have to keep throwing Hearst's name around. Most of the time, other people are the ones who bring it up first. Um, unless he, you know, really wants to back somebody down. But, yeah. Unless he has to tell EB who he is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, it's interesting because he's, I, I wonder, do you think that they are giving him this weird, sexual violence thing as a way to compensate for the fact that all he kind of does is just sort of exist otherwise because you know what i mean it's it's like you feel they need to up his intimidation yeah, I, factor I, I, and i'm and i'm not and i'm not saying i'm not saying i think that's what they're doing or anything uh or that i don't like it but i'm just curious i'm just thinking out loud about it cuz it is he is such sort of a passive character at the moment that's I wonder if they're giving him that uh, darker side just to make sure that he remains um, a uh, like a threat. Some, yeah, a threat. Yes, that's what yeah. I was looking for. Yeah, I um, I guess it's a good place to start is Walcott because I think Walcott's a pretty interesting character. Um, yeah, I do too. Walcott, to me, he. 
It's maybe not ex- like exactly clear what he's supposed to represent, but I do like he obviously he represents Hearst's interests, right? So, and um, I, I mean I, I don't know if I mentioned like Hearst is just one of my favorite villains antagonists of all time. He doesn't show up until the end of the season, but like his mm-hmm. Walcott embodies a lot of what makes Hearst so interesting, except for the fact that he is clearly he's clearly like a damaged person too like oh definitely so what's interesting about walcott is that you were saying to make him um intimidating or to add a sort of like a threat behind him there's the sexual violence thing what i find funny about the sexual violence is that the sexual violence stuff which he hasn't he hasn't actually been sexually violent really not he's he's kind of pushed the girls around he's not he's not exactly nice to the prostitutes but we're more told that he does things than we've actually seen him do things the sexual encounters that he has are funny to me because they're almost more embarrassing than empowering to him, you know? Right, yeah. And I, th- I think that that's what the, the the construction of the character is supposed to represent is that he's like this, he's this sort of brutal, evil, malevolent force that's coming in and he's he represents this larger change of like the world outside the camp that's coming in and all like the wolves are circling the camp and the people with power are starting to show up and they're going to start mm-hmm. taking things from people. But Walcott himself is so damaged and broken as a person that he can't even have like like a human to human sexual connection. Like he just he just comes in his pants basically. Like there's no Right. He's so broken and so in this like fantasy world where nothing is actually a connection for him that I think he just represents kind of like the um the like the psychotic edge of the the forces that are coming into camp, which is that they're unable to, to have the the human connections that the people in the camp are starting to have. It's a very mm-hmm. cold, evil. I'm going to take what you have, and to do that, I have to not be able to empathize with you. I have to not be able to connect with you at all. Mm. And so I think that's what Walcott is, because I always find his his sexual violence to be more just like awkward and sort of like he's play acting a role like he he he's trying to pretend he is something we're watching amy's watching the house of hammer documentary on like hbo max which is about army hammer and oh, his weirdness sure, yeah and i get a lot of army hammer vibes from it which is like <laughs> the, the guy's clearly mentally ill but like the text that he's sending obviously and obviously he did bad things but the text that army hammer was sending were like so performative and over the top you know that i can see why some of the women were confused about him because sure. it's so it's so weird. <laughs> and I feel that Walcott is kind of the same way, which is that he's kind of acting this role and he's not very good at it and he's insecure. And that's potentially where the violence comes from because he tells, I think her name is um, Carrie in this one. She says, don't hit me. And he says that he says something along the lines of like, she never gives him reason to, which I assume is that they laugh at him or something like that. And you mustn't hit me like you do the others. You have never displeased me. Don't fucking hit me, Francis. Done. Agreed. the Indians. You would change the course of history. 
Be the first of the women chiefs. Oh. I'm too quick. You can't be too quick for me. Yeah, yeah, he definitely, I mean, nothing he's doing to the women screams um, control. Like, I, I should say it screams control from him, but it's not, like, it doesn't feel He's no genuine. Ted Bundy. It, he's no, he's yeah. no, like, suave guy who is tricking women into their death, basically. Yeah. You know? Well, even, even, even the stuff that he's doing where he's, like, making all the girls stand, facing away from him and not looking at him and stuff, it never... It never feels like he's doing it as, excuse me, it never feels like he's doing it as a a dom who's in control. It feels like that's what he wants to be, right. but he's yeah. just kind of, like you're saying, he's kind of play acting at it. So it it, it feels kind of, uh, and I mean, Carrie seems to know the deal with him in that he's kind of all all talk right. to an extent. Yeah, because she's so confident with him, you mean, and just yeah. she, she can tell yeah. him what to do. Yeah, because he, he he does come across as he wants to be the dominant one, but in the bedroom he's actually more the submissive one in mm-hmm. that case, and I, I think that that's his, it's his play acting thing. And I think it comes down to the, the casting too because Walcott and um, Dill Hunt, Dill Hunt isn't, Dill Hunt's tall, but he's not exactly, I wouldn't call him like a physically imposing presence, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's pretty lanky for the most part lanky and i mean a a decent decent sized guy but not not someone that um you're going to not someone who just screams like there's trouble brewing with this guy you know he he seems a little bit more meek than that so i i feel that that kind of fades into it too but yeah walcott is um I, i think that's why he's so strange and why he he's almost difficult to gauge because he he's set up clearly to be a bad person that no one should like but at the same time he's pathetic enough where you kind of sympathize with him somewhat like he's not mm-hmm. he's not outright uh in control of the situation he he sets things up this season to Hurst's advantage but i wouldn't say that he is in control of the situation at large it's more that he's just a fairly effective person at what his job is supposed to be and outside of that in his personal life he's kind of in shambles yeah yeah he seems to be uh yeah i mean he seems like he he's the second in command who wants to prove that he's the big boss right you now yeah and so he takes his he takes his shortcomings out on people that he can that he can get over on, which is prostitutes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, it continues. You can look at it too. The thematics of um, the oppression of women and stuff like that in the era. Mm-hmm. And Walcott's the kind of person that would come in and um, be worse to them. Um, I mean, and the, the prostitutes are the most obvious example too of just like the the theme to me is largely what people are willing to sacrifice to get the money that. Uh, Hearst and Walcott represent mm-hmm. like Maddie's whole thing about this one is that the whole reason she's doing this is that she wants to have you know she basically wants to make enough money to walk away from stuff and she's not going she's before she dies she says she wants to have a comfortable retirement um, and so she's making a choice to sacrifice one of the girls uh, to Walcott's tendencies and everyone else in town is kind of following the same thing I think like um, 
is a lot of emasculation going, not even just Walcott, but like Tolliver is being emasculated and does not like it, but he's going mm. along with it for the time yeah. being. Uh, he has that scene with Lee and Walcott where they talk about how they're going to start bringing in the Chinese prostitutes and selling opium and Tolliver can be in control of that. And Tolliver just has some line about like, he doesn't. He normally doesn't like to not know what the fuck is going on, but he's at a point in his career now where he's like, it's kind of relaxing. But you can tell it <laughs> irritates him to not be. He's so snarky towards Lee and Walcott in that scene that you can tell it's sort of irritating him that he's not actually the honcho anymore. He's just more of a hired hand for somebody else. Mr. Lee will provide opium to you exclusively for sale to whites in the camp. You will receive fifty percent of the gaming proceeds from Celestial's Alley. My man will have to take. Spare Mr. Lee here, explaining how slow business was cause uh, Buddha's wedding anniversary. Your men lamp the take. Also on proceeds from celestial prostitutes. How many do you want? How many can you bring? How many? That that sounds like a man with an inexhaustible supply. <laughs> how much English do you have, my friend? Maybe when we get to know each other better. I'll take a dozen out of one of them fucked out. I set the rates the upkeep's on him. And my understanding is the upkeep is quite minimal. Good. Gives him more to spend on Mahjong. <laughs> I won't question the apparent one-sidedness of our arrangement. Uh, the arrangement is not yours and Mr. Lee's alone. Yes, and in ways I don't understand. It must benefits you and the man whose name I must never say to have Mr. Lee in camp and perhaps Mr. Wu out of it. Maybe among the spirits of his ancestors. And what a blessing for me finally to reach a point in life where I don't feel I have to know. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see where Tolliver heads in this season because I, I do feel like he's getting the short end of the stick a bit so far. Um in that everybody else has so much going on when you he's just sort of facilitating for the Walcott storyline, you know? Yeah. 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 Do you get a Which, do you get do you get any sense of him about how he feels about that, I guess? Or is well, it no, I, I mean I, I would agree with you. I think I think that they are playing it every everything we've seen up to this point is him sort of in this position where he doesn't really know what's going on. Um which I think is is uh, is is fun because he does position himself as someone who seems to seems to know everything that's happening, but he really doesn't know that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, he still has that kind of aura because um, Joni has that scene with Dan where she's talking about she she'll burn the gem down if Tolliver tries to take over. So there's at least this front of Tolliver seeming as if he's in control, which is her plan all along to have Tolliver be the front that buys up all the claims. But everyone in town at least seems to be buying into the idea that Tolliver is doing this without any other kind of backing behind him. You know, <laughs> this that makes so much more sense to me because I was very confused because I got the names wrong in my head. Mm -hmm. And when she was saying will you help me burn this place down if Tolliver takes over? I thought in my head when she said Tolliver, I thought she meant Bosch. 
Oh, Silas Adams. <laughs> oh, I see. Because those two are fighting with each other too. I yeah, because yeah, because he's he's fighting with Dan. Yeah, and he's got that connection to Yankton or whatever. And I think just Tolliver and Silas for some reason I put those two names together, mm-hmm. and I don't know why. <laughs> Um, and so I, when she said that, I was like, why does she think that Bosch is going to try to take the place over? <clears throat> he can't even have a meeting with Al. He's got, he's got no power. Yeah, she, there, she just reflects the, uh, the Tolliver taking over aspect. Um, did you have any – I mean, I thought this episode stuck out to me. I didn't write down a lot of this stuff, so hopefully my clip selection will be able to carry us through a lot of this because I, I won't be able to do it justice. But – um. I thought that this episode had a lot of great dialogue lines in particular. Um, I thought that some of the conversations between uh, characters were really great. Like, just apropos of nothing, uh, in the Ellsworth and Walcott scene where they're talking about their prior history with each other, um, Walcott says, I do dimly recall an Ellsworth superintended the consolidated Virginia operations. And Ellsworth says, I guess he wasn't at the uh, Comstock for that one. He was somewhere else. Ellsworth says, I don't give a fuck what you recall. Walcott says, a hero dug a week without respite to save three poor souls from a cave-in. Ellsworth says, and 46 corpses in a fucking hole that ought never to have been dug. Walcott has this great line after that. He says, always a choice to count the saved or the lost, which is... um, just goes to the dehumanizing uh, nature of Walcott there. It's an interesting thing to say, which is that you focus on either how many died or how many you saved, but Walcott is the dehumanized capitalistic Hearst force, and so he only... he, he The death doesn't matter to them in what they're trying to do, so he ignores the 46 that died, and he focuses on the three that lived, and, and Ellsworth is the opposite. Yeah, yeah, I thought that scene was really great. Um yeah, you know, it's it only takes two scenes to make Ellsworth a much more sympathetic and, and interesting character than he was before, you know, because he yep. kind of, he'd just been the guy watching over and, and tending. It makes more sense because we were kind of joking earlier, I think, about how he's just, he's such a shit kicker, a panning gold miner. Yeah. How does, why does he know how to get this whole operation up oh, right how does he get the the quartz pounding machines up and everything right like that? Yeah, right and yeah. so clearly he has a history with this and which i think is a really smart move and and the way that the i just love the way i continue to love the way that they give you information and backstory about these characters because it's never in a way that's they never do that thing that all modern tv does usually they do it right before they kill the character but where they just like focus on him for an episode and give right. you like flashbacks and we shit haven't had and, the ellsworth uh 50 minute episode of deadwood to this point right yeah that ends with him getting shot in the face yeah um <clears throat> they they lay it out in such a way that doesn't feel like they're bringing attention to it and by doing that it makes it feel more real and it makes it feel uh easier to um sympathize with i think yeah i i love that um I completely agree. I think that that scene, the Ellsworth and Walcott scene, is just really well done in terms of the characters saying a lot without particularly saying too much to each other. Like you, just the setup for it, which is that Ellsworth recognizes Walcott, and so all of Walcott's very effective lies, right? Like Walcott, like the, the, Dillahunt doesn't play that scene as though Walcott is obviously lying to Ellsworth about everything. He right. plays it very straight. But the only reason Ellsworth sees through it is because he knows the history of him. And so it's all this great uh, dialogue about, like, 
um, sure is you know something will happen like you you Walcott wouldn't be making an innocent error because like, he apologizes for like an innocent error when he tells him to fuck off or something like that and he's mm-hmm. the, the, he, he knows him well enough to say that you coming here is not an innocent error nothing you're doing right now spreading the rumors is like a just a happenstance kind of thing like this is all part of your plan what's come along and right. I just like it because the, the dialogue just highlights how much of a performance both of the characters are doing because neither Neither are acting in the way that makes the dialogue seem obvious, if that makes sense. So, so Walcott is not like, you know, twisting his mustache or as he's telling a lie that the, the audience right, knows right. is a lie to Ellsworth and Ellsworth calls him out on it. You have to, you almost, you, it's the thing of you almost feel sorry for Walcott because Ellsworth just comes on so hot and is like, what the fuck are you doing here? Get the fuck out of here. And you're like, hey, <laughs> how do you, you, you can't talk to him like that. He hasn't done anything wrong. And I, I think it does a really good job of that stuff. Listen, I don't like what Walcott says, but I will defend with my life his right to say it. Okay? His right to stand there and, and watch the courts be pounded into dust. Yeah, and there's um, uh, just the little lines, too, with when E.B. and Alma have their funny conversation. E.B. I little... love that scene when, when she... <laughs> she tries when, to buy man, the hotel. Yeah, that's the, again, that's such a great scene because... <clears throat> She knows from Ellsworth that what's the the stuff that's going around is bullshit, and then EB starts chucking bullshit at her, and then she goes, "Oh well, doing then- the opposite of Walcott, selling it badly." Yes, you know, yeah, yes. selling it badly. Yeah. And so her response then is like, "Oh well, you know, if you want to sell your place, I'd be happy to buy it from you." Yeah, seeing like, how well, everything's well, you know. going to hell in a handbasket, so right. you probably yeah, she get knows it. she knows he's lying, and you know she's trying to force his hand. She's trying to get one over on him or, or whatever. Yeah. But, um, and it was just, it was so good to watch him, him squirm away and her have the upper hand with him. <laughs> Keeps bumping his head. He, has some... he seems like the kind of asshole who would, who would actually sell it to her just to maintain appearances right, and, to and, keep, come, <laughs> to and come away thinking like he got her, you know? <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Garrett, what male would not trade our small superiority of intellect to possess that, gift of intuition so bountifully bestowed on the lesser sex. Mr. Farnham, your meaning is beyond me. I imagine you, madam, awakening the other morning, suddenly and for no earthly reason, convinced the camp was at peril. My goal should be spirited to Denver. I imagine you thinking, maybe as you brushed your hair and without worrying the conviction or studying upon it, Sending the gold away. At peril. Mr. Fawn in the camp. Your meaning is beyond me. Ma'am, if a Nubian genie were at my disposal, I'd see his great nigger fingers whisk up my hotel and deposit it in Denver, just as you did your gold. Because the camp's at peril. Yes, madam, yes. Peril. Worse than peril. Perhaps you should sell. Mrs. Garrett, had I your intuition, would I not have done? I'll buy it. Aren't you wonderful and kind and intuitive and generous? No, I couldn't burden you nor impose upon your generosity, tremendously wealthy as you are. Name your price, Mr. Farnham. We'll close the transaction now. 
Now you unsettle and trifle with me and make me nervous and uncertain. My intention is quite otherwise. And intuition. Oh, your intuition? Name your price. How do you males put it? Shit or get off the chamber pot? Oh, Mrs. Garrett. Shit indeed. Oh, dear. He's so welcome. Like, he, he comes into that, right? And he has this funny opening line, which is like, He's like, although the men of the, the the male sex has the superiority of intellect, I would give it just an inkling of a woman's intuition, you know? So he, he starts it off with this weird backhanded compliment. And then Alma embarrasses him in, him in that sort of discussion where he realizes that he's cornered and he, get, he gets embarrassed and he can't sell his hotel. And then she walks away and he just calls her like a haughty cunt under his breath. And it's like, <laughs> it's, it's such a... It's just such a perfect little encapsulation scene of what E.B. is. You know, it's just like he's this incompetent, um, overly verbose, sweaty palmed. Like he just he has none of the capacity of Swearingen to like sell the lie in any right, in any way. Right. He's just he's he's. He's performatively trying in the way that Walcott's trying to be the dom of these situations. He's like performatively trying to be Al and stuff like that, and he just always backfires on him. And Al, up to this point, hasn't had to drop the N-word to do it. And E.B. gives us the first N-word of Deadwood. Is that just, um, I mean, Gene? Uh, He he hustled his way through that word, too. (laughs) (laughs) I got the feeling he was not comfortable saying it, nor nor should he be. There's a a character coming up who's going to make everyone... Um, extremely uncomfortable, I think. Then. Um, yeah, he. I, do you think of genies as black? I guess, like maybe that's just, maybe it's just Aladdin. As like, obviously they're not blue skinned, but like I never thought of them as um, black skinned. No, but I mean, I could see the the connection being the uh, you know it's it's they come come from a Middle Eastern tradition I assume I I don't actually know if that's where they come from but. yeah Nubian means Sudan okay Egypt. yeah that that makes that makes sense then the desert Middle East yeah yeah okay so it's I mean it's a it's a it's an odd choice um, it is I would because I, I would have I would have thought more maybe it's just Aladdin I I thought this was more of a Persian thing with the genies but if it's not it's an African well, I tradition I don't. I don't know how discerning E.B. Farnham is going to be on skin color when it comes to uh, expect, what, what region of the Middle East or Africa the genie comes I expect from. my genies to come out in polyester button-down dress shirts with bad cologne. That's the, doing, the way that uh, I expect it. Doing impressions of uh, Johnny Carson. and <laughs> No, we don't, we don't get any of that, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, it's a- can, you, can, can we talk for a second about Robin Williams playing the genie? Because yep. in in retrospect, is that not one of the most insane performances? Because he's doing these, he spends the whole time doing these impressions. This is a, chi- a children's movie. You yes. and I watched this movie when it came out, I assume, and yeah. we were probably like 10 or so. Have you seen it recently, Aladdin? I haven't watched it recently, no. Okay. Yeah. Have you? Does it hold up? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't hold up. In my, not, uh, not that it doesn't hold right. up, but it's not as I, I thought it was one of the. It is one of the Disney Renaissance movies, but I, yes. I I always put it as one of the top, and it's not one of the top movies. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was always my favorite. It was always my favorite, but I think it was ninety nine percent because of Robin Williams. But, yeah, yeah. But but said that still, like even look, what is he's in this kids movie doing insane impressions of people who've been dead for like fifty years? <laughs> yes, it wasn't scripted, right? He must have been improving that, and they animated it. 
He was, assume. yes. As yeah. far as I know, he was improving that stuff. Yeah. Like, like who? I did. I, I think I. I may have mentioned this on another show because I feel like I talked about this relatively recently. Maybe it was in my regular non-show life, which gets the sliver gets smaller yeah, and smaller. Blurry, blurry. <clears throat> um, but I was. The, I, I only recently. There's one impression from that from that movie that I never knew what it was until like the last handful of years when I was watching the show uh, on Netflix about. Um, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley. Yes. And when I was watching that, I was like, oh my God, that's the one I didn't know. <laughs> he does a William F. Buckley impression yes. in Aladdin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> every every child's favorite conservative talking head. It's a famous debate. He didn't have a chance to put Chomsky up yes. there, I guess. Yeah. No, it's funny. It's um he is probably the best part of Aladdin, but I yeah, it's a uh, we could probably do Aladdin on the Patreon or something. It does it doesn't hold up as well. You know what was surprising to me? Um didn't like it as a kid, but Beauty and the Beast is clearly one of the best Disney movies. So yeah, yeah. You know, I you know I, I think I would like that one more now. You I probably didn't, would. I didn't dislike it, but I think you know when I was a kid, it was like, well, it's a girls' movie. Yeah, and it's you know the the prince and becoming falling in love. That's where the, it's the you, most beautiful Disney movie. It's oh, like, yeah, the animation it's is gorgeous. In it. Yeah. Where are you on the Lion King? Uh, it's overrated, but it's good. I agree. I was. N- I've never been a huge Lion King fan. It's surprising. Watching it now, it's surprising. Um, how how would you say this? Like it's it's a startlingly quick movie in some ways. Like it it really it doesn't. It's very short. And it doesn't go deep into things. But it um like there's a there's sort of I don't I don't know how to describe it like you don't see a lot of the growth of Simba really like he just he's a kid and then he becomes an adult and he goes back and that's the end of yeah, it and stuff very, like that but very Jesus Christ of him yeah it's um Lion King is fine but it's a little bit over it it's in the top half but it's not it's not near the top for me either way and the other yeah. way not even that sexy bedroom eyes from Nala oh uh, yeah scene. the fuck me eyes from Nala are deeply <laughs> uncomfortable <laughs> and I'm surprised how many animators had to take to every, get that done every generation has their Disney cartoon <laughs> character that makes them feel funny mine was the the female squirrel from Sword in the Stone yeah the, the female squirrel <laughs> and also made Marion from Robin Hood the female fox version yes yep. yes yeah is Robin Hood before the Renaissance? I think it is, right? That's like it the, is, yeah, yes. It's the eighties. Because so <laughs> sorry to hijack this whole podcast, but mm. um those movies are the are some of the more interesting ones to watch, though uh because <clears throat> after Sleeping Beauty, Sleeping Beauty cost a shitload of money. And it comparative compared to how much it cost, it it, it didn't do well. Yep. <clears throat> and it was one of the last full ink and paint Disney movies. And so after that, it didn't do so well, so they had to figure out a cheaper way to make these movies. And so they fired everybody and developed this new system of animation where it was Xeroxing the pencils and just, they weren't inking them. They were just Xeroxing the pencils onto uh, acetate. So when you watch movies from that era like Robin Hood and uh, 101 Dalmatians is a big one, the, the animation, you can like see the pencil drawings and it's a really, really cool look and i've always loved that look but it's so fascinating to find out that they did that because they needed to save money yeah and so they essentially fired the whole ink and paint department and replaced it with a xerox machine machine. (laughs) (laughs) it was like uh ai coming early they're like oh my god the xerox so that's why you've got like your 
like movies up through Sleeping Beauty are very clean. The line work is very clean. The animation yeah. is very smooth. And That's then true. once you get into the 70s, it's a lot choppier and a lot more expressive. Yeah, well, Dalmatians was early then, right? So is that is that is the the change happening earlier than that? Uh, yes, I believe 101 Dalmatians was the first one. Okay, because <coughs> Dal- the Dalmatians might be in the 50s, right? Is, is no, it- it's not. It's not that early. Not it's, that early. Uh, it's in the 60s. 61. 61. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, that that art style that you're describing is noticeable in Dalmatians, I think. Um, yes, very much just so. Because yeah. of the sheer amount of dog, I think that you're seeing on this. That's yes. still it's still a neat animated one, just because of how uh, the how many dogs are on the screen. That yeah, they had to draw. we we watched that once uh, when Disney Plus first booted up. We went through and we watched a couple of the older ones, and 101 Dalmatians is is great. It's really yeah, good. It holds up. The kids like that one too. Yeah. And I I will say. The story of Sleeping Beauty is, you know, take it or leave it. But that is one of the most amazing looking movies I've ever seen. Yeah. It's the, the animation is unbelievable. The design work is unbelievable. Have you seen uh, Tarzan? I have not seen Tarzan. I was I, I was off the Disney bandwagon. Yeah. By, uh, by the we, time we, we were too old for it. But that's yeah. a Hunchback, neat, that's a Hunchback of one. Notre Dame. Was Hunchback? No. Pocahontas was where I drew the yeah. line. I didn't. I I made it through Lion King. And then I think that was probably my last one. And then Pocahontas and Hunchback. I never really watched those. Yep. Mulan. Never watched Mulan. Yep. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Uh, the Tarzan one, it looks cool. Um, the movie is fine, but it's a neat looking. You know, as they slowly started to move into like computer layers and stuff like that. Yeah. Like yeah. Sort of uh, interesting stuff to look at. But we did do, we did cover Moana on the Patreon. So people can go look at that if they're interested in us talking about a movie that That's is not true. from the Disney Renaissance. We did. And I am only just remembering now that we did that. And yep. that seems like it was 200 years ago. <laughs> Coming up on the Patreon, we rank all the Disney movies. It takes seven <laughs> years, but we'll get it done. <laughs> um, back to Requiem. Rescuers, uh, let's talk about Rescuers Down Under and yeah. the Aristocats. <laughs> yeah, the Aristocats. Uh, I'll get confused and watch the Aristocrats and we'll be like not be able to talk <laughs> about what we're doing. Um, so we talked about EB and Alma uh, through their little scene of realizing what's going on. So people are seeing through Hearst's uh, machinations with Walcott and stuff like that, although a lot of people aren't. Marvin is not. Uh, I like Marvin the Miner. <laughs> That's one who's, don't fuck oh, look yes. over my shoulder when I draw my X. <laughs> I only hope, Marvin, you ain't privy to information that I ain't. 600 U.S. dollars, Mr. Tolliver. Claim 16 above discovery. That ain't responsive to my previous fucking statement, young man. I'll tell you what, sir. It's a fucking altitude that's got to me. I see. Nosebleeds and every fucking thing else. Well, your health's got to come first. Leon! Light as my kit's got. We can go ahead and say done. Six hundred dollars, Con. Right here, sir. Um, besides Oliver dealing with him, all that nonsense. Who's um, the guy with the no, with no ears? We've never seen him before, right? No, he's uh, what, what is his name? It's uh, Eamon? It's Eamon, but his name is uh, like, God damn it! It's like something ear. Uh, it starts with a C when you tear something off. Oh, uh, I Here's don't remember. Deadwood. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I got. I gotta look it Is up. Crop, crop, crop ear. Crop ear. Yeah, crop ear. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, we have not seen him before, but he, there, there's another example of backstory. You get a, a backstory of Dan in this episode about where Dan came from, which is that he was one of Cropier's <laughs> uh, allies or whatever. And then Al came into Honestly, town. Yeah. That was, I was having a hard time tracking what the hell they were talking about. Oh, I knew okay. it was something to do with, there was some sort of robbery that he wanted Al in on. Yes. But I, I was not totally tracking what the connection between him yeah, and Yeah, Eamon, Eamon is trying to bring a job to Al, and Dan is trying to disguise the fact that Al is sick, and Cropier is being very irritating about it. But Dan and Cropier have a history that they came from the same sort of gang of ah. bushwhackers or whatever, just out causing trouble. Gotcha. Uh, until Al came in, and obviously Cropier holds it personally because the, the thing he says before he dies is that he just he says now he's just a cunt who stands behind a bar, basically. Yes. So they don't look highly on what Dan's uh, choice of career has become at this point, but he, he pays I, the ultimate price for it. I have a question about Dan. Yep. Uh, towards the end of the episode, it might be during the we sh- if we all burn it down sequence, <clears throat> Trixie says to Dan, don't die with your secret. Yeah. What is she talking about? Your creature walking around on hind legs. Just like crop ear and them half dozen bushwhackers out in the forest. Ones I'd fall in with or out, whatever suited my daily purpose. That's what I was till I crossed paths with Al. We'll bang the drum and play the pipes, and I'll rend our fucking garments. I was just saying. I ain't hearing confessions this afternoon. Say you'll burn it down with me, Dan. What? This fucking place. Before letting Tolliver take it over. Done. Open your mouth, Jewel, and say something we can't fucking understand. He's asking for you. Don't die with your fucking secret. Uh, she's talking about the fact that what Al means to him. It's what okay. they were just talking about. It's the fact that um, Al's like. All the characters. Al's important in this one because Al's revealed to be sort of a, like a semi-savior to a lot of the characters where mm-hmm. his importance to them is meaningful and it culminates in that scene where they're all sort of lying in bed with him after he's gotten his uh, kidney right, stones out. Yeah. But yeah, he. I, I believe that she's talking about, because Dan opens that scene by talking about how Al basically saved him from that croppier lifestyle and like gave mm-hmm. him more of a, a purpose and a meaning. And... Trixie is just saying, don't just talk to me about it. Like, if he doesn't survive, you should tell him that before he dies. Gotcha. Okay. Because I, I wasn't sure if they were implying even more than that, that Dan actually was, like, in love with Al. Oh, no. No. Okay. Although the, you are predicting a funny joke that happens, I think, in the next episode. <laughs> um, yeah, so Al, I guess we can talk about Al for a little bit. Al doesn't have a single word of dialogue, I don't think, in this episode. He, he kind of goes at the end of it when he's looking at the camera uh but other than that i don't think he says anything although he does seem to get his stones out in uh a good way um he doesn't have to go through the surgery that only 20 percent of the population would survive uh he doesn't he decides to go through the belly and not the taint which is 
Um, that was my favorite part of the episode is when the doctor explains this, the surgery. And then uh, Johnny just goes, below entails cutting through his tank. <laughs> That's right, Johnny. I like Doc's honesty here, which is like, I once watched a guy do something like this, and I think <laughs> I think I could do it for you. It's very much a, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV <laughs> energy. Yeah. So it's, uh, what'd you think about Al and all the uh, the goings on around Al? Because I... I, cause I <clears throat> I think it largely represents the thing about Al is that it's what we've been talking about, which is that like Al started off as kind of the primary antagonist and like villain of the show. And he he has not particularly moved into a better person, but everyone else who's coming after him is even more wolf-like and sort of like dehumanized in terms of their connections to the town. And so they're willing, the people who are coming in are willing to do more extreme things to people to get the gold and the the sort of abstract idea of like the wealth that's in the town al has a different relationship which is that he is still part of the town and you know the 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 episode goes a long way to just showing like how important al is to not just the people in that room when he who sort of believe him to be family or people who have uh, prevented him from having to do another surgery that he might kill. You know, he, the, the doc is happy because Al prevented him from having to do a surgery where he might kill another person. Right. Uh, but even gets down to the technical, there's a scene where Saul, it's kind of a throwaway, but it, like, it ultimately builds towards it where Seth and Saul <clears throat> have their conversation about how they're trying to start a bank with Denver's backing, and they don't have the capital to start up their liquidity, so they are considering how to do it, and they bring up Swearingen as an option as to how to get the cash to start up this bank. Um, so Swearingen is important in a lot of ways to the town in a way that it really feels like when he's suffering and gone, everyone is kind of noticing the fact that he's been yelling in pain. They don't know what they're going to do if he's gone at that point. Silas doesn't know who the boss is. Silas doesn't know how to recover from what he's threatened Jerry with if Swearingen doesn't come back into the show. So it's um, mm-hmm. Al, Al says a lot without saying anything in this episode, basically, through the actions of the other characters. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I liked it. I thought that stuff was really, uh, <clears throat> really, they've been doing a good job showing how central he is to everything and how uh, taking him out of the equation kind of grinds a lot of stuff to a halt. Yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, it's tough. It's uh, It's a... Because you do rely a lot on the other characters, and I, I do feel like I miss Swearingen when he's not in the show. Like he, you, you certainly lose a, like an obviously like a very important character, but it somehow feels. I just, I just like I miss his sort of interactions with the other characters. Really, like he, he's a, he's such a unique voice that when he's not around, the show does feel slightly different. Even though I understand why they had to do it to sort of advance the the plots that they've got going and stuff like that. But I am looking forward to getting him back. And I think he, he at least talks in the next episode. So I don't know if he's out and <laughs> well, about, good. but he talks. And again. I, was that, I, I can't remember. I know you said it like just last episode, but that was like a million years ago in our, our time. Mm-hmm. Um, is did they, they did this specifically because he was getting too popular and they needed to like even the field out. Is that what it was? No, Milch just couldn't see how Walcott could come in and accomplish what he needed to accomplish. Oh, if Swearingen okay. was uh, aware of what was going on. Sure, and but it was HBO that was like, well, everybody likes this guy. Please don't do this. Right. HBO's argument was that you can't eliminate the the best character on the show for 25% of the season. Well, somebody tell that to 
The X Files season seven. <laughs> Hold my beer. Hold my Edward. beer. Is that is that is that the first is that like Mulder's replacement season? Yeah, that's that's the season that Mulder leaves. Okay. And it's actually was it seven, eight? Maybe it was eight. Anyway, there was one where it was just Scully and another person, and then there was the final season where it was essentially two new characters and Scully sometimes showed up. Oh wow. I didn't and, even know uh, that happened. How long was yeah. Robert Patrick on the show for? Two seasons, I two think. Two seasons. It okay. was it was him and Scully, and then it was him and Annabeth Gish. I believe okay. <laughs> for a yeah. uh, hot second in that final season. Yep, and that was uh, that was it. That was it. Interesting. You know the weirdest thing about Robert Patrick, his brother is the front man of Filter. Yes, that's weird. It is weird. Yeah, that's real strange. Yeah. Um. Thanks. Has there ever been a show that has successfully handed the show off? to a new cast of main characters and kept going uh, i guess i guess would like something like law and order maybe yeah law and order it would have to be some kind of procedural thing which the x-files kind of was but it's still too important to those characters to replace them. yeah i feel like the, the everybody always there's always comes to a point where they try and it never works i mean they did it half with um House of Dragon, although I guess they're the same characters. They're just different actors or whatever. But, yeah. Um, no, I can't think of a show that's... Like, is, is the other one, is there is there an ACDC, which is that the the lead character gets replaced and the show does better? Oh, sure. Ooh. NYPD Blue, maybe? Because maybe. Caruso got taken out and then it got popular. Yeah, yeah. I know that... I don't know if it got better. I don't think it was on much long after this, but they did that on the TV version of Lethal Weapon. Okay, the guy, who, the <laughs> guy who played uh, Murtaugh. Yep. No, Riggs. Whatever the Mel Gibson part is, um, like went nuts or so. I can't remember what exactly what happened, but he ended up le- leaving the show, and he was ostensibly the lead of the show. Yep. And they replaced him with uh, Sean William Scott. And okay. I, I don't. I don't know how much longer the show lasted <laughs> after that. But. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not a good example of it. Um, yeah. So, uh, and just back to to this, I, I I found the writing in this episode to be really good. Hopefully, my clips make up for it, just because I didn't do a very good job of writing down the uh, the dialogue, particularly. But um, I just like the little one offs in this one. I thought that they were very quotable. Uh, Ellsworth and Walcott's. I think that Alma and them have good scenes together. I think I like Eb's little soliloquy there, where he's. Um, trying to convince himself that he's not betraying Swearingen by what he's mm-hmm. doing. Um, it's good and quotable. It is no disloyalty to be a realist, Richardson. We are mortal. One hopes for the best. One perseveres. One reevaluates constantly. One is an asshole if one doesn't. Loyalty expanded is not loyalty betrayed. I contemplate. No disloyalty to Al Swearingen. I feel exposed. I don't like being weak, and I know that I am. I yearn to rely on a stronger will. I fear what I'm capable of in its absence.
Whereas you, Richardson, know nothing of yourself. Are you shitting or going blind or on foot or horseback? You vile fucking lump! Tolliver has some some interestingly funny lines. There's no Charlie Utter or Calamity Jane or anything like oh, that, yeah. unfortunately. But yeah. uh, the rest of them are are firing on a lot of decent cylinders, I think. I noticed uh, this is completely arbitrary, but it just reminded me because of Charlie and Jane. Yep. Uh, has have we only just started getting previously on things? This is the because first one that I've ever seen. Yeah, it is. Okay, yeah, because I it did the previously on, and I was like, what the fuck? I, I don't. I did not remember them doing that before. They didn't even do it during the two parter. Interestingly, <laughs> like so, I don't know why they chose this one to remind us what was going on. I wonder if it continues. I, I don't think I've ever seen it before, so I wonder if it's a new thing. Yeah, it is just Max know. now. It's not HBO Max, so maybe. Maybe that's the uh, that's the stupid, stupid, <laughs> stupid thing. <laughs> How can they get rid of HBO in the name? That's the only thing, the reason I that people know. want it. And the weirdest thing is, Cinemax exists. Yeah, it still or it did. The, I don't know if it does anymore, but it did. The branding of HBO and HBO Max still. I only think of condoms. Looking at that brand, it's like the purple background with the, <laughs> yes. the curvy letters. It looks like a condom wrapper. <laughs> it does. It looks like a Durex yeah. ad. Yeah, yeah, but like it's. It's the HBO is your selling point. Yes. Everything else is additive. It's not the reason that you've been here. You yeah. Know? No one's like signing up whole... for Discovery Go or whatever it is. Right. And honestly, I don't think that change the change tells you they've added anything. No. Because that's the whole thing. Oh, we're merging with Discovery. It's like, well, you're you're still just showing me HBO shit on the on the ads. Yeah. It should just t- be it should just be we just made HBO better. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's 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 the only <laughs> ad that they need. Call it HBO. I don't know. I don't know why they need to brand it so confusingly. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, it's just, I guarantee you it's something that was just committed to death. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like the if the Oscars absorbed the Tonys and you're like we're not going to call it the Oscars anymore, you know? It's like, well, no one's really <laughs> tuning in for the Tonys here. So yeah. just just stick with yeah. it. It's like if the Oscars absorbed the Tonys and the new award ceremony was uh, new award ceremony was called like the pickles. Yes. <laughs> like nothing about that tells me what, what this is. What is this? Yeah, at all. You've lost you've lost all all identity. Um do, do, do. Oh, Saul has the the great line if money had to be cleaned before it was recirculated, we'd still be living in fucking caves, which is funny. Yeah, that's a good line. I liked after that when he was like, well, Your dad, and he's like, No, that one was mine. That's that's mine. <laughs> what do you think of Saul at this point in the show? Uh he seems to be taking a bit of a backseat to yep. some other stuff. Yeah. Um I assume he'll come back at some point. How do you uh do you I, I guess I'm kind of noticing um there was a little bit of production uh drama around it which is that uh, i i didn't really want to bring this up too early but we might as well go out with it now is that um uh powers booth is apparently a very difficult actor to work with um oh really that does that surprise me hmm i'm gonna say no no yeah he so uh, eventually we we haven't seen a lot of sigh in this one but we will see more of him and uh, there might be more to speak about it later but um He's apparently it was apparently very difficult and it's kind of an old Hollywood style, which is that he was very concerned about if he was winning scenes, really. So it was kind of like a competitive uh, thing for him. Oh, weird. And didn't get along with a lot of the other cast members. 
and stuff like that. But I, I, I feel that um, Sai is kind of an example of the backgrounding of characters. And, and I, I'm remembering now why I brought it up is that Tolliver, Powers Booth was concerned that his character was not being portrayed correctly in the second season. Um, and I think a lot of it is just that like, I don't know how you feel about it or if you've noticed at this point, but it it seems like Milch was prone to becoming bored with characters relatively oh, yes. quickly. Hundred percent. Yeah. So he, it's very, very clear. He introduces new characters and some of the old ones drop off a little bit. And mm-hmm. I don't know if not that I would agree that they that things have to change for the plot and stuff like that, but he, it's certainly a case of like there probably is more that could be squeezed out of the characters. But I I was thinking about you the the line of understanding when you have fucked out a character is kind of difficult to identify until it happens. You know what I mean? Like, sure, yeah. So it's it's the Belichick thing of like cut them before they start to get too old, really, and and stuff <laughs> like that. But it does leave you a little bit wanting sometimes when you, the characters have been passed over a little bit. I I think they'll save Psy. I think that that's more Powers Booth being upset that he, he's not as prominent in this season, but they, they're doing something with Psy that I think makes sense with how much screen time he's getting. So, Yeah, that's interesting. Um, let's see. I guess that's it. Anything else you want to say about Requiem for a Gleet? Are you glad the kidney um, stones are gone? Yeah, I'm, I'm ha- I'll be happy to see uh, <clears throat> see Al back up. I thought Gleet, I assumed it was some sort of slur. I didn't know they were talking about it. Yeah, the crystals. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, the other thing, I thought the Sarah Paulson stuff was interesting. Oh, yeah, we haven't talked about that. Yeah, we should talk yeah. about that. Yeah. What did you, what yeah, did you think I, about it? Well, because I, um, there was that one episode before where I thought that she was up to something uh, malicious. Yeah. And she seems to be up to something again here, but I'm not really sure what it is. And I couldn't, I couldn't remember if she and Bosch had some sort of, relationship that was my big question i was like have these two yeah. met in this show and i, I don't think they have met. i don't think so no yeah so, so it was kind of weird to see them interact in that way yeah that that stuck out to me as um so she gets fired the, the firing scene was fine i thought that that all made sense yeah. in context and stuff like that uh her going to see silas and explain that she thinks that alma is trying to kill her so she needs protection from silas that really felt like a, oh, shit, we need to get this into the script somehow. <laughs> like, how are we going to do it? And they had laid no groundwork. I don't. Uh, cr- people can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure those characters have not met each other yet. Um, so they, they just exposition a whole bunch of we have met previously, you know, or maybe not even exposition. They just, they, they just play the scene as if the viewer is supposed to assume that these two know who each other are and that they're uh, comfortable with each other. <clears throat> Yeah, that's that kind of stuff is where this show I'm on the fence about it because it's like the, like you're saying it's it's so oblique that they're cut they they don't do it a ton but there are some times where I feel like they cut corners a little bit to just be like ah who cares yeah they met off screen in between episodes last week who yep. cares whatever let's just, so it's like yeah it, it, it it'll bother you or it doesn't you know yes well I mean do you for some reason it doesn't really it doesn't really bother me i don't think um i don't know how you feel about it but it it is like it does tread it's another one of these fine line things it, it treads dangerously close to 
the kind of modern criticism of like if something isn't said, it's kind of like oh, a sure. problem yeah. as to why yeah. this has happened. And I think that this one just kind of sticks out to me because I don't know why it's. I I think it's the familiar like they didn't even really do the scene as if he was like who the fuck are you you know coming into this room or anything yeah. like that. Like it, honestly, all you would need is like a scene where they pass each other in the street or something. Right, like I don't, right, I don't think yeah. they've ever been on screen at the same time. Right. Yeah. And so it, it just feels a little bit. It, it, it makes you feel like they know each other from before any of this. Which, yes. if that's the intention, that's fine. But if not, I don't know. It's, it feels a little weird. Yeah. Like it doesn't really bother me, but it just it's another another layer of things <laughs> that you kind of have to parse out. Um. In in some scenes where it's already difficult to parse out what's going on yeah yeah i'd agree um all right so i guess we're done with requiem for a glee so my just final thoughts about it are that uh i really liked this one i like the dialogue and i like like all the character interactions i like the showing how important swearingen is to the camp uh by eliminating him and having everyone else sort of respond to it Mm -hmm. i like this um i do like this idea of it's something that the show has always been kind of doing, but it's sort of broadening the scope now, is that uh, Milch's fascination with the way that this like abstract idea of the gold being valuable, right, causes this whole chain of events to spread out to different characters who come in at different points in the story and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's so funny that it all stems from just like digging this rock out of the ground and that like that becomes the value and then it builds a town around it and then like the people come together and then people from out of town who have more of the rock themselves come in and get take the the rock from everybody else and um, I don't know there's something like sort of profound about it you you know that uh, I think we talked you know that rich dad poor dad book right oh yeah that like personal finance book the uh the author's kind of nutty but he did he does hit on something in that book that's like kind of vital which is that like and it's represented in the show is that you don't want to be you can't work for wages right like you can't be at the bottom you're just never going to be wealthy if you work at the bottom sure and it's not because you uh like even if you're paid a lot you could still possible to not be very wealthy just because you're doing all like the the work that's being paid for and you're not able to like maximize your money outside of that. And what I like mm-hmm. about this is that it shows that it shows like the miners do this thing and they get sort of ripped off and they've been putting like their back and like breaking their back doing all the work and stuff like that and they come out with this meager amount of cash out of it while Hearst who's backed by this tremendous amount of capital doesn't really have to do anything to get all of it for himself. Mm. And it just shows the fact of like you you want to that's what the rich dad poor dad book says it's just you have to move out of that into a realm where your money is the thing that makes the money for you if you want to actually be wealthy you can't do work for it you have to right you right. have to you have to build off of it basically you start with work and then you build into other things but I think the show just represents that kind of cleverly in how Hearst operates and things like that yeah yeah so yeah once you get as much money as Hearst you're good to go you're good to go except Hearst is driven uh to a fault i think hearst will never retire i don't think i love george hearst in the show so i'm looking forward to seeing uh, him he's fantastic um that's it do you have any final thoughts about this one um no i thought it was good i uh i 
<clears throat> I continue to be fascinated with the structure of the show, and I, I do think it's Milch's. Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, his tendency to be, uh, um, his attention to be grabbed by different things. Yep. Very quickly makes me wonder how certain things are going to play out if they're going to be satisfactorily resolved. Like the stuff with the, the Shea, it something about that just has, we drop this halfway through the season written all over it. You know what I mean? Like yep. there's something about it where I'm not really sure what they're doing with it, where it's going. If an episode rolls around halfway through where Maddie gets a bullet in her head and Joni just like leaves town, I won't be surprised. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Is um, I guess just because you do you feel it's too tertiary to the actual town, or do you feel uh, it's just not clicking with the other stories in any way? Because it mostly yeah, it is feels, just functioning as a Walcott thing. Yeah, it feels a little peripheral. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it, it's it's. I'm not totally sure. I'm not totally sold on whatever maddie's whole thing is yep and i don't think Joni has really been front and center enough in the, in what they're doing to make it to make me that invested in it yep um i love, so, Ma- yeah. I love maddie's line about they get led around by their dicks and if we get, get a lot of ourselves get led around by our cunts then we give up our one power over them yes uh, which yes is, which is very good yeah i um <clears throat> I find yeah, I, I I find that more interesting just through the the sort of dynamics of what they're doing there, which is that Maddie's willing to go to a level here where sacrificing the girl, which is Joni's having a hard time doing um, at this yeah. point. I guess I guess the thing that I'm missing from that stuff is I'm not really sure what Joni wants at this point. Yeah, she seems like she's a on along. It seems like it has switched over to Maddie's story. Yeah, and it, it it I don't totally feel any attachment to her because she just kind of breezed into town two episodes ago so yeah yeah i I mean i guess it's just that Joni's story is to be the the better angel there where you disagree with selling out yourselves for what the possibility of fortune might come from it Mm. um taking a stand against like how far do you have to go with the johns really like what's what's allowable and what's what's not allowable and stuff like that Mm. but um We'll see. We'll see where Joni and Maddie get to. That's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the Penske file if you enjoyed that. There's all the other shows are up there, too. There's all the other shows at thepenskefile.com. You go to the Patreon. They're at the YouTube, blah, 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 all that good stuff. I don't think there's anything else really to say. Thank you for listening and leaving comments. And we've had, like, new reviews on iTunes, which is always exciting, from names I don't recognize. And they say they found the show... Just looking for a Deadwood podcast, which is very nice. Nice. Appreciate it. Mission accomplished. SEO accomplished. Uh, Clay, do you have anything you want to say? So thanks, everybody, for listening to this show. We're almost halfway through Deadwood, so Mm. we're moving. But do you have anything you want to say, Clay? Yeah, check out the uh, Rotten Horror Picture Show stuff we're doing on Patreon. Uh, We're doing the Video Nasties this year. Uh, I found out my – I think I may have talked about this a little bit previously but my dentist listens to that podcast no oh, really which i i find really fun and uh <laughs> she, I, I was like oh that's so great that you listen she's like yeah i've only listened to a couple you know like 15 and yeah. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> out um, the sounds of people screaming in the dental i guess chair. but uh uh i also i have a comic book out right now the first issue of batman white knight presents generation joker 
which is a lot of is a long title, and I would like to see it broken down into like letters. That'd mm-hmm. be fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> White Knight presents Generation Joker number one is out right now that I co-wrote with uh, Katana Collins and Sean Murphy, and issue two comes out sometime in June, like mid June, I think. So check it out. Yep, so it'll be coming out right around the time that this podcast comes out. Thanks everybody for listening. You can join the Discord is our last little thing to plug. That's it. We're done with Requiem for a Gleet. The next episode is simply called Complications. So I'm sure things go swimmingly for everybody. Thanks again for listening to Something Pretty. We will see you next time. <laughs>